Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Today, March 13th, marks the one-year anniversary of a day that changed a lot of our lives. On March 13, 2020, Governor Ralph Northam announced that all public schools in Virginia would close for at least two weeks. During those two weeks, we saw the temporary closure of many businesses, the first limit on gatherings, and on March 30th, the first statewide stay-at-home order. So here we are, one year later. And we're going to talk about it with Samantha Willis. She's an independent journalist who just published a series with the Charlottesville Inclusive Media Project on the racially disproportionate impacts of COVID-19 over the course of this very long year. We're also going to talk to student artist Macy Brandon about her exhibit for this year's mostly virtual Liberation and Freedom Days. But first, Albemarle High School student Mary Govan shares a podcast she made in May of 2020 about what turned out to be her last day of in-person school for a year. Today are on the starting tomorrow, all school-related activities are canceled for the extended future, at least for the two weeks that we're out. Uh, There are no SATs tomorrow. Again, no SATs at Albemarle tomorrow for this the governor's issue two weeks. That was Principal Bonham on Friday, March 13, 2020, on the PA system telling all the students and staff that Governor Ralph Northam had declared school closed for the next two weeks. Little did anyone know that it was going to be the last day of school for that school year. I was a ninth grader from Almaro High School when the epidemic hit, and I have made this podcast to share different people's experiences during the pandemic. Lots have been different, but lots of them have been eerily similar, too. Section 1. Excitement and Curiosity At first, we had two full weeks off, and to me, it felt like an early spring break. Maybe it was just because I was hoping so, but during the first two weeks we were not in school, I thought we were going to get to go back. I think most people were excited and ready for this to happen. Here's Kate, a longtime friend, talking about how she first felt. I At first I was happy. I was like, pet, no school. <laughs> and she was not alone. Ben, a fellow ninth grader at Almaro High School, said a similar thing about his first reaction. At the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, okay, this probably won't be that bad. We take two weeks, no school. Hopefully, we'll be done by in March. Then, during those two weeks, Governor Northam announced that we were not going back to school for the rest of the year. I was very surprised and a bit worried about what was going to happen next. 
Section two: Unexpected news. I had so many different questions and feelings just swirling inside me. Here is an audio of my siblings and my reaction to when my mom gave us the news. All public and private K through 12 schools again, in Virginia will close. I know. We need to figure out FaceTimes. That's why I want to clean up. Also, they were going to give me a Skype number, but um, a couple days ago, but they didn't. So. I didn't, text, I didn't email them back. This is going to be so weird. Yeah. It's going to be. Mom, how are we going to get stuck? stuck with us? Be so and you better have some good things up your sleeve. What about Daddy? I'm crazy. How are you going to see Daddy? Please can we say that you see Daddy before like end of the school year? Section three: free time and more free time. It seemed that people were finding things to do and had more free time. For example, I have been sleeping in more, running on my own a lot more, reading more, painting, and just relaxing and enjoying my time more. Also, my friend Caroline has been enjoying the great outdoors. I will go outside, and we have a bigger property, so I'm so happy about that because I actually am not cooped up in the house all day, and we can just kind of like run around or whatever. But that's been great. With that being said, I guess it turned out to be possible to have too much free time too, as Kate found out. I have time to do things that usually I'd be like. I do have time for this, but this is my only free time. I'm not going to use it to like clean my room.、Um, and so now I just have so much free time that I do have time to clean my room. No matter what myself wants to say, I do have time to clean my room. Section four, boredom. After that. Came boredom. I'm bored to death. Every now and then, it's boring. I am bored out of my mind. It seemed like many people were getting restless and antsy. And a big part of the boredom was missing friends. Here's my sister Caroline, a twelve-year-old who had her birthday just two days after schools closed. I miss my friends from school, and and I don't like staying inside the house all the time. And the same goes for my friend Caroline. But I really miss seeing everyone. And even my youngest brother. I miss my friend. I know. Can we call them a couple? We、days? can. Section five. Buckle up. This ride's not over yet. There are people losing their jobs, and people protesting the stay-at-home orders, and it seems to be pushing states to reopen. However. With students finishing school, camps shutting down, and parents still trying to work, how will that pan out? Governor Northam has started easing restrictions in Virginia, but is it the right decision? It feels like it is going to hurt us all in the long run, because staying home is doing our part to help the world right now. Since this time last year. 193 people in our health district have died from COVID-19, and for those of us who have been lucky enough to make it through this year in good health, COVID-19 has still impacted our lives in a lot of really serious ways. That's especially true for people of color, and that's what Samantha Willis has been reporting on for Charlottesville Tomorrow and Vinegar Hill Magazine. 
Today we're talking to Samantha Willis, and she's a freelance journalist based in Ashland, which is in Hanover County, Virginia. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. My name is Samantha Willis. I'm a writer, independent journalist, and um, I am a, a proud resident of Hanover County. My family has been here since um, the time of enslavement, and our church and our community was founded by um, people who were formerly enslaved and freed men. Um, so we have very deep roots here, and I like to say that because Hanover County is a place that um, I think in, in many ways, like Charlottesville, still really struggles with a difficult legacy. And again, th- there's a parallel th- there between places like um, Charlottesville and other places around the state where you have black and white communities that have been living beside each other for you know hundreds of years, but there's still deep-rooted issues, animosity, and a, a lot of structural racism as well. So you're currently working on a five-part series, the first four parts have come out, about the disproportionate impacts of COVID-19 on people of color in Charlottesville and Albemarle. And that's been published with uh, the Charlottesville Inclusive Media Project, including Charlottesville Tomorrow, Vinegar Hill Magazine, and uh, In My Humble Opinion. So disproportionate impacts of COVID-19 on people of color is a really broad topic. But for Still Determined, you've reported on this um, from a lot of different angles. So let's go through these areas that you've written about um, related to COVID-19 kind of one by one and talk about some of your findings. So starting with vaccines, in our health district, Black and Latino people in particular have experienced severe COVID-19 requiring hospitalization at disproportionately high rates. Where are we in vaccinating those populations in our health district? The numbers change every day, so I would encourage you to go to the Blue Ridge Health District's a website for the most current information. But at the time that I wrote um, my report in the Blue Ridge Health District, the, the, the vaccine data that we were given was that about a total of 5,642 doses of the vaccine had been administered. And of those vaccinated, 4,873 were white people and 426 were black. So, you know, that was a disparity that really caught my eye. Here we have the people that are being impacted most severely in terms of being hospitalized and and, um, even suffering deaths, those are the same people that are receiving the fewest doses of the vaccine, at least initially. Um, And and I know in talking with um, people at the Blue Ridge Health District, they, they tell me that they're making efforts to make the vaccine more accessible and available to communities of color. But at the time that that, um, I was reporting this, that was a startling disparity. These numbers reflect a larger trend and a larger reality that our healthcare systems here in the country have a legacy of uh, not providing adequate treatment and adequate healthcare to people of color. Is the Blue Ridge Health District or UVA or Centera doing anything to make the vaccine more accessible to people of color in our area? And what are those things? Sure. At the time, again, of of my reporting, um, the Blue Ridge Health District told me that they were in partnership with several community organizations on um, not only vaccination events where people could come and and get vaccinated um, specifically for communities of color, but then also they're making efforts like distributing the information in Spanish as well as English and and working with uh, the UVA uh, Latino Health Initiative. So they, they were actively partnering with community organizations 
to try to mitigate the discrepancy in the amount of vaccines that black people and brown people were um, receiving. Uh, I, I would again encourage you to check with them, go to directly to the source and see what their efforts have yielded just over the past two or three weeks since I've published that report. So let's move on and talk about the next article in the series. Um, This pandemic is connected to a real increase in mental health concerns across the country and the globe. What does that look like here in our community, especially for people of color? Um, Here in the the Charlottesville region, one thing that I found, um, the, the pandemic and the mental and emotional strain that it that it brought with it and the continuing mental and emotional strain that it's having on these communities, it amplified systemic societal issues um, that they've faced for generations anyway, like racial discrimination, decreased access to health care, et cetera. Um, but there, I was very encouraged to see that there are various means of um, health services and, and support efforts to really help people to to make it through this pandemic and the the as we're moving into a phase where we'll hopefully be moving out of the pandemic, um, helping them to to cope in a healthy way that's going to um, support um, healthy emotional and mental health outcomes. So you talked to a couple counselors at the Women's Initiative. Can you introduce us a little bit to them for people who aren't familiar with their work? Sure. Um, I I was very excited to talk with them and to learn more about the Women's Initiative. I know that they're located at 101 East High Street in Charlottesville, so it's a pretty accessible location. They are a mental health service agency, and they serve over 4,000 women annually. Um, The good thing about the Women's Initiative is that they offer their services to women regardless of their ability to pay. Uh, We know that lack of health insurance is often a barrier um, to people receiving counseling and mental health services, but they kind of take, they they do take that barrier away for for folks, which is excellent. Um, They also offer culturally competent programs that focus on the unique needs of black women and Hispanic women in the region. You also wrote about education. Can you give people a little update on what the latest is in the city and county schools? Are they mostly teaching remote or in person at this point? My report on education was published on March uh, 2nd. Um, And at that time, um, Charlottesville City Schools were preparing to send kindergarten through sixth grade students back to learn inside of their school buildings. Virtual learning really presented a challenge for some students in America, students who may not have access to, um, you know, internet, reliable internet at their home. So what the school system has done, um, they have, you know, made sure that all the students in their district um, have access to reliable internet. They've given out Chromebooks, uh, I believe, to to all students. The city of Charlottesville schools also distributed internet hotspots to families who needed them. And they partnered with Comcast to make an affordable essentials internet package, which would be available to families at a reduced cost. So to me, there was really some solid steps that the school district took to, to try to mitigate the effects of difficulties, challenges with virtual learning, and even as they're preparing to come back for in-person instruction. So to me, it looks like Charlottesville schools are really trying to do the best that they can for their students. And then your most recent story in this series is about the 
economic impact of the pandemic in Charlottesville, both on workers and on minority-owned businesses. How have local businesses owned by Black people and people of color fared here during this pandemic? You know, um, the... The Virginia Small Business Commission released a report in December 2020 that revealed 27 percent of small businesses in Virginia closed either temporarily or permanently during the pandemic. And of that of that percentage of that 27 percent of small businesses who closed, 40 percent of those businesses were in the hospitality and leisure industry. Um, I was able to talk with Ms. Holly Lee, who is the chief of workforce development strategies um, in Charlottesville's Office of Economic Development and also the Downtown Jobs Center. And she explained that many of the minority owned businesses in Charlottesville were greatly impacted um, because there are things like barbershops, beauty shops, nail salons, um, personal care businesses and food services businesses that were all, you know, effectively shuttered. Um, when when the stay-at-home executive orders were issued and when businesses were were closed down by executive order, what what we're seeing now, according to to Miss Lee, is that some of those businesses are starting to come back to life. Some of the Black and Hispanic-owned businesses that might have closed temporarily are are reopening, whether that's reopening their brick-and-mortar locations or pivoting to to virtual or online sales systems. They're they're starting to make a comeback. As of last week. Ms. Lee said that the the, uh, the Office of Economic Development was beginning to disperse um, another round of mini grants to city businesses, um, $40,000 worth. All of the businesses who received those funds were minority owned or owned by women or both. Um, so so that's encouraging that this the city has, seems to be putting forth an effort to support and elevate and help small minority owned businesses to survive and make a comeback from COVID. And then on the, you know, the, the unemployment and the jobs side of it in January, 2020, you know, last, last year before the pandemic swept in and changed life as we know it, um, the city's unemployment rate was about 2.7%. But that just bloomed during the, uh, during the coronavirus in April Charlottesville's unemployment rate peaked at 9.5 percent, um, but it's gradually lessened as the year, you know, as the year wound down. Um, and in December, the unemployment rate was down to 4 percent. So we see that um, people are returning to work, returning to, to jobs. But the, the challenge is to make sure that um, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, demographics that, um, you know, their their jobs they may have lost their jobs because of the industries that they work in. The challenge is to make sure that these individuals have um, access to employment, um, just as much access to employment as, as anyone else. What themes have you noticed over all four of these topics in your upcoming article? The theme that I've noticed the most is, is something that I said earlier, that COVID has really exacerbated or amplified existing challenges that were already there in the areas of socioeconomic opportunity and equity. It exacerbated healthcare disparities. COVID exacerbated problems with the digital divide. And for, for folks who don't know what the digital divide is, it's the learning gap that occurs 
when students, some students have more access to internet and digital resources than others. And the students that don't have as much access to the internet and those digital resources are in danger of their education suffering because of that. In terms of mental health, we already knew that black and brown communities had mental health challenges within the community, but there was existing stigma within the community itself about seeking mental and emotional support. And even when um, black and brown people in these communities would seek mental and emotional support, there's barriers to access. Um, you know, I, I actually just wrapped up my interview with Mayor Nakia Walker for the piece that I'll be writing um, that will be published next week um, that really is going to seek to contextualize COVID in terms of, you know, how it's been handled locally and what's the lasting legacy of COVID in the area. And, you know, even in speaking with her, she highlighted the fact that there were things that were not of equal opportunity and equal access before. And, and those things persist now, even with the, with, with the virus. And even as we move into more people being vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the one theme that I definitely noticed throughout all five articles, the reporting for all five articles is that COVID didn't necessarily, it did, it did bring new challenges, but it also really amplified existing challenges for communities of color. And my hope in writing about these challenges and in talking about these challenges is that more people will be made aware that, hey, these were problems even before the, the pandemic. This, now that we are having to basically rebuild everything, start from scratch with the pandemic, this is an opportunity to create a more equitable um, society for everyone. This has been excellent. Thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add? I do want to add a very, very special thanks to my editor, Sarah Davenport. He has been really helpful in terms of helping me to understand um, some of the unique character traits of, of the Charlottesville community. I'm really grateful for the, the, the collaboration with Charlottesville Tomorrow. I definitely want to give a shout out to um, their editor, Mr. Elliot Robinson. This has been a really collaborative process. And I just thank everyone who's, who's been a part of this process and who's, who's working continually every day to, to disseminate information that is of special import to communities of color in Charlottesville and to making the area and the region a better place to live, work, play for everyone. Thank you and, and thank you for inviting me here today to speak and I'm hopeful that progress will continue to be made. Samantha Willis is an independent journalist. You can read her series titled Still Determined at Charlottesville Tomorrow or Vinegar Hill Magazine. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. In our next segment, I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Tanisha Alston. She spoke with student artist and graphic designer Macy Brandon about Macy's exhibit for Liberation and Freedom Days. 
If you have a minute now, I hope you'll look in the show notes and open the links to a couple of Macy's collages. In this segment, she and Tanisha are going to discuss her series, Black in America and Face Collage. We're here with Macy Brandon to discuss her exhibit entitled Reflections. She put on in partnership with Freedom and Liberation Days in Theological Horizons. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with Freedom and Liberation Days, March 3rd, 1865, Union troops seized Charlottesville, liberating over 14,000 enslaved laborers at the end of the Civil War. In 2019, the city of Charlottesville voted to make March 3rd a city holiday to commemorate this victory. And every year, the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center puts together a whole week of events to honor and celebrate Black history here in Charlottesville. Hey, Macy, thanks for talking to us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, um, as you said, my name is Macy. I'm a third year undergraduate at UVA. So I'm majoring in media studies and American studies, as well as minoring in entrepreneurship doing the social track. And a lot of that is because I'm very interested in culture and how that is shaped not only contemporarily, but historically. Especially in the current social climate, what does freedom and liberation mean to you? To me, and I think this is something I highlighted a lot, or at least I tried to highlight a lot in the gallery, was um, self-realization, but also peace of mind. Because a lot of what hits me with freedom and liberation is being able to like be okay and find ways to cope with what's happening in the world and what has happened in the world. But a lot of that is very, very overwhelming if you don't understand your position within all of that. So a lot of freedom and liberation has to do with realizing who you are and being confident in that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I fully agree. I loved your exhibit. Could you um, describe it a little bit? Like what's it about and describe a couple of the works? Sure. So I thought it would be really meaningful to start with personal pieces that kind of not only describe who I am, but what freedom and liberation means to me personally. So it's kind of like a self-introduction slash introduction to the rest of the talk that will be a little more heavy with what was the next section of the gallery and um, like historical pieces where it was like three faces moving from left to right. And it went over like the history from enslavement to civil rights to today with like Black Lives Matter and everything. And then that wrapped up again with an idea of self and mental health. So it ended with another piece kind of similar to the first collage where it's like my face and I'm cutting into it um, and working through like what mental health means in relation to freedom and liberation. So you already talked a little bit about the Black in America set, but I wanted to talk about it just a little bit more. So for folks who aren't looking at Brandon's Black in America series right now, I'll just take a minute to describe it. It's a series of three collages, each centering on the hand-drawn faces of a different Black woman. In the first one, she looks down to the left, and in the silhouette of her hair, Brandon has collaged drawings and photos representing slavery. Behind her is the Confederate flag. The second in the series brings us up to the civil rights movement. The composition is very similar to the first, but this woman looks up and her hair bears images from the civil rights movement. Behind her is the American flag. And in the final image, a woman is once again backed by an American flag, but this time she's looking down. The silhouette of her hair shows us contemporary scenes from Black Lives Matter demonstrations. One thing these women all have in common is that they are crying. So yeah, Macy, can you elaborate a little bit 
more on this series. What critiques, if any, does this series of collages have on American society or UVA on a smaller scale? Yeah, so the Black in America set actually started with the last version that I showed, um, where she's looking out to the right. And originally, it was only like her hair had been different patterns and textures that I put in there. Um, the tears were still there, the facial facial expression was still there and everything, but it didn't have the same meaning. And after the George Floyd protest over the summer, I changed it to adapt to what was happening in the world. So I transformed that graphic to be the uh, first Black in America in the series. And then once I found out about this event, I thought about how I could take that and then expand it to tell a story of like history. So then came the graphic where she is looking first to the left and it kind of still has like the tears going down the face and everything. And similarly, it has like the texture in the tears. Um, and instead of like textures in the hair and everything, it has images from enslavement in those periods. And I wanted to make sure I focused on the faces rather than like, the events that were happening, I think that focusing on the faces, therefore, is a lot more powerful. And it's a much better use of my time, my resources, and the message that I want to be portraying to people who look at it. So after doing that piece, I made the middle piece where she's looking upwards towards the civil rights movement. And similarly, I focused on pictures of people who helped the movement and also ones that are not as publicized. So I didn't try to use pictures of like Martin Luther King Jr. just because a lot of people already know that story, but not to diminish that in any way, but because there are so many stories to be told. So I'm going to try to focus on those in this particular piece. So that kind of built up the middle section of it. And then I had the original first graphic with the Black Lives Matter movement that used pictures from different parades and everything like that. And... I guess one other thing that I really wanted to be powerful through these was the background. So I didn't let the hair take over the entire graphic. They're more so in the foreground. And then behind that, it's actually flags. So the first flag with enslavement has the Confederate flag. The second and third graphics have the American flag because honestly, they can mean the same thing. And so I thought it would be very meaningful to put those in conversation with each other. Yeah, yeah, it translates so well. Okay, so during your talk and just then you mentioned the women's hair in your painting as well as Black women's hair today, and you said that they hold the stories of our history. Can you um, explain how hair politics influence these pieces? Yeah, so I like to preface everything I do with the idea that like I am a young black woman in America and that is what shapes my point of view. So that idea of drawing literally from my experiences, but then trying to translate that to kind of tell a story of a wider population, a wider history and everything like that is what really inspired everything. And people hold a lot of their identity in their hair. So like saying I want to tell history through the hair and everything like that. And unfortunately, it's not like the best place where we are now. But as con as history continues to move, I hope that the hair will soon tell better stories. 
I like that. I love the as history continues to move because I feel like a lot of people kind of forget that we are still living in history. And as we experience things, as we continue to just live our lives, like history is creating itself in a sense. So mental liberation was a very poignant theme throughout your talk. Do you mind explaining a little bit more um, what that means? Yeah, so kind of as I um, first mentioned, moving from that idea of self and then into like history, but then back to self was because I was really trying to highlight how much freedom and liberation has to mean to somebody personally before they can ever even really begin to think about what else is happening in the world. And a piece of art that I wanted to highlight was something that I started um, last year, my second year. And I wanted to tell the story of like mental health and basically what it means to constantly be in a place where you are not only holding yourself up, as you can see by the mini Macy up in my hair, but also to potentially be dragging yourself down. And what happens as a result of that? So that's where there's like the pulley in the middle of my head that is cut open, but also um, my arms that are reaching out, holding myself up, but also threatening to knock myself down. It's a lot of back and forth, but it is something mental health, you know, it's not one of those things where you should shy away from it. And that's why it was like even in a lecture of 70, 80 people, I want to be able to present what's honestly on my mind. And I thought it'd be very meaningful to share here in terms of freedom and liberation, because there is a lot of freedom and liberation of self that needs to happen before you can start to think about the broader scheme of things and society and history. Yeah. How would you say our ancestors support and influence our understandings of liberation? And this is like kind of inspired by your grandparents' piece and how um, central that piece was to the, the rest of your art. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because I thought that would be a great um, piece to show for the gallery, just because like I based her on the theme of freedom and liberation of self through family and through learned experience. So having my grandparents' piece in there meant a lot because a lot of freedom and liberation came from that sense of support that my grandparents and of course other family members um, and like friends have given to me and the general idea of kind of like what our ancestors mean in terms of freedom and liberation ties also into like the middle or um, second piece in like the black in America series and I mean even talking about my grandparents they're they were around in like the 60s and 70s so those are very much times that they remember and they can tell me about so it's something that resonated a little bit more heavily with me um and I wanted to again kind of like show the faces that weren't as typically told in terms of freedom and liberation just because they had a very strong realization in who they are and they wanted to share that message with the world and that is how they got to be in these photographs leading marches participating in marches and so on and so forth earlier when I was kind of talking about being selfish and realizing who you are, it's the ultimate goal 
of those actions is to become selfless. So it's like you have to be selfish to understand who you are, but you have to be yourself in order to help others. All of that kind of like meshes into what really shaped my decision to put my grandparents' piece in there and that familial connection as well as the middle piece in the Black in America series um, and like civil rights and focusing on that movement. Um, an extremely salient takeaway from your gallery talk is that there is no monolith of Blackness or liberation and the struggle for liberation is timeless. You also mentioned the modern aestheticization of struggle. Um, can you describe what you mean by that or give an example? Yeah, so that line was inspired by when I was working on the graphics, because um, I'm spending, I spent this year at home and my mom came in and she was like, why are their faces so sad? I didn't have like the pictures on there yet. So like the full story kind of wasn't in there. It was mainly just the um, sketch that I was working on her face. And I immediately thought, I was like, I wouldn't want to make these faces happy or even change the expression over time because there's nothing happy about the history that has shaped where we are now. And where we are now is not happy either. And um, one visualization I had of that kind of came from the idea that soon our textbooks will have these pages back to back, you know? It'll be enslavement, it'll be civil rights, it'll be Black Lives Matter. And who knows what page will come after Black Lives Matter. I mean, one could only hope that it'll be true freedom and liberation, but that was also a similar thought after civil rights and it's still not achieved. So it's really hard to conceptualize what is to come, but people are showing no signs of slowing down and fighting for what they know they deserve. And it's something that's very admirable. It's something that I want to continue to express through art, kind of like the thought process that's going through dealing with all of that and the emotions that come with that. And I think that really helped to guide a lot of the art and the thought processes that went into delivering the gallery talk and tying all those themes together. All right. Is there anything you would like to add to this conversation? Uh, just uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been great to talk with you and kind of like hear your reaction to the art and everything and not only have my thoughts be kind of like reaffirmed, but also get new thoughts, new inspiration for some pieces. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's it's been great to talk with you. And thank you again for everything you have said about the art and just kind of interacting with that. It means a lot to hear. Thank you for chatting with us. Um, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Jim. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producers this week are Tanisha Alston and Mila Cesaretti. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs>